overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios, Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of The Badge Boys, a show where two retired cops talk to the community. I'm retired Crime Stopper Sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Checkerly. And, you know, last week I was kind of excited, giddy. We had a gal from Ireland. Um, weeks before that, we've had really exciting shows. This one, I'm kind of in a somber mood, I'll be honest with you. I, yeah. I, this is a sad case. Mm-hmm. This is horrific. This involved... Um, you know how, like, when you talk about Pearl Harbor and the, you know our prior generations and our generation, we talk about nine eleven. You know where you were, what you were doing at the time. There's certain local incidences that have, I would say, on a local basis, everyone knows where they were right. and remembers the case. And this is that one case. It was referred to as the Arizona Canal Murders uh, because it was two young ladies, one teenager, seventeen, the other literally on her 22nd birthday, that were brutalized, murdered horrifically. And we'll go into maybe a little bit more detail with the, uh, one of the uh, sergeants of the cold case that helped solve this crime mm-hmm. some 20 years later. Yeah. Uh, this occurred in 92. We're talking, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. But I was a young cop, and I remember getting the bulletin on it, and I was just disgusted by what I saw. Mm-hmm. And they gave us a photograph of the bike. So Every call after that, I was looking for this bike that was taken from this victim yeah. um, in vain. And, and you, you weren't well, a cop he, then, but... No, I wasn't a cop then, but... So it's really interesting to... I remember, though, the brutality of this crime was not something that I had heard, obviously, or seen at the time. And even when you fast forward to, you know, when Arizona became a little more nationally known we had uh we had the serial shooters we had the baseline killer our true first serial killer i guess because you know he killed nine people but then i went on to become a cop and i met several police officers like you who were young officers that worked this case i, I met a homicide detective who worked it and it haunted him i even worked for certain people who even had intimate knowledge of the crime and then finally years later solved it and it was one of those cases that always was in the back of your mind like how can we not figure this out and why did they end we're talking about two women why wasn't it 10 20 100 uh it's it's almost like the golden state killer right Mm -hmm. he got away with it for a very long time and then for 30 years and, he thought he was free. And we got into genealogy, the beautiful DNA, new technology yes, of genealogy that is go- you as time goes by, more and more of these guys were So you are going to continue to hear on the news crimes getting solved from yeah. way back when, and yeah. the way you know I'm not going to try to explain genealogy to you, but it is fascinating. It is how Absolutely. you can narrow it down to like 70 people, and then. Good old-fashioned police work. Yes. Who was where at yes. this time? You still have to solve it the is, crime. It is just a beautiful thing, yeah. and it's going to— It's a tool. It, it's so a new tool. I'm excited. Well, I've been excited since this case finally got— um, An arrest so, w- For us, you know, it's yeah. easy for us to say solved. Yeah. It is, but it still has to go through the process. It still has to get adjudicated, and all that we care about 
is a successful prosecution, prosecution. Thank you. and a successful end because it it's not actually over yet. Correct, 100%. And to that end, our guest, uh, retired Sergeant Troy Hillman with the Cold Case Homicide Unit in the Phoenix Police Department is our guest, and we're not going to ask him questions where we feel would be comp- could compromise the case. And sure. even if we slipped and did no, ask, No, Troy still ask. has to sit Absolutely. in the courtroom and, yes. and answer questions. So, so I, I'm just excited about introducing someone who I've known 20 years. Um, Troy Hillman was one of those really smart cops. You knew he had a future. Uh, we were young sergeants together, a 23-year uh, veteran with the Phoenix Police Department, again, retiring from the Code Case Homicide Unit. He won awards with the uh, IACP, the International Association of Chief Police, for excellence in criminal investigations regarding this case. Mm-hmm. He's received awards uh, from the ch- police chief unit award. I could go on and on, and I, I don't want to take time away from talking to Troy no, Hillman. So without further ado, Troy, welcome to Badge Boys, my friend. Thank you guys for having me on the show. Yeah. Um, again, I, I try to preface it, my excitement on this, because this is, again, one of those big cases here locally. But this received national attention as the Arizona Canal merged. I believe that was how they coined the phrase. Um, we're... Where were you when you first heard about this case? I'm assuming it wasn't when you were sitting there as a cold case homicide sergeant. Actually, when I when I started in uh, as a cold case sergeant, homicide sergeant in 2008, um, it was one of the first cases or set of cases that were mentioned to me. Uh, at that time, I, I didn't give it too much of a thought um, because one of the original detectives was still kind of working it. Okay, so, so it was a cold case based on time, but really the original case agent was still there. Uh, the scene agent was, yeah. Thank you, the, thank the you. The case agent had retired. Gotcha, gotcha. So, yeah, so even though it's a cold case, it kind of isn't because there's someone working it. In a sense, they're still inherited the case. Um, tell me a little bit about, I'm going to skip back a little bit and talk a little bit about your career. You came on at what what year, worked patrol, and was homicide your dream job? Absolutely. So I, I came on the department in 97. I was a uh, kind of a... Uh, a nerdy CPA with uh, too much energy to sit in the cubicle all day long. So uh, the next thing I knew, I, I, gra- I always say I put down my uh, briefcase and, and calculator and picked up a gun and a badge, and I was down on the streets of South Phoenix uh, helping try to solve crimes and, and patrol. Um, so I did that uh, for a few years, and then I ended up uh, becoming a detective. I uh, worked in uh, what was called at the time document crimes. It's now become financial crimes. Um, enjoyed that, but it really wasn't uh, as as neat and sexy as as uh, as homicide uh, appeared to be. Um, but I ended up promoting to sergeant, spent some time back on the street, and then somehow I, I was asked because of my skill with uh, organization and CPA and and just tracking inventory and that kind of stuff. Hey, come get our cold case homicide squad organized. Uh, there's a lot of there's some grants coming on board. Uh, we need we need help. So um, I took the position and, and was kind of overwhelmed, um, but it ended up being a phenomenal part of, of a journey uh, that I'm very, very proud of. When you looked at your squad and you look at these cases, uh, I don't want to go into the weeds with it, but basically you do some type of assessment. You score them based on you know, solvability and so forth. Where did this case come up in terms of solvability factor, if you can recall? This case was in terms of forensic evidence, highly solvable. But the problem was uh, we did not know our files were uh, 
the basement was filled with uh, files and files, and there were file cabinets. Um, we, we did not know. It had been in the system, the DNA system, f- since 99 and, and never hit to an offender. And like Jason said, you'd think there would be some what we call pre-crime, and there would also be post-crime. And so we were uh, kind of befuddled as to what, wh- who exactly we're looking for and, and why he may have been off the radar. I think the general consensus was, uh, even amongst some homicide brethren, where it was, it was, he was dead um, and that, you know, kind of, kind of move on. Um, but I had a, a group, I'd assembled a group of very talented, hardworking detectives. Uh, they wanted to, um, we have a tendency as cops to sometimes work alone. Um, and, uh, they, they wanted to work this as a, as a team. So we, we embarked upon this three and a half year journey in, uh, roughly, uh, September of 2011. And we ended up, uh, solving the case, as, as Jason said, making the arrest right, in uh, right. January of 2015. I think this is a perfect time to play a video. This is a newscast from a local radio, radio oh, excuse me, news show that talked about that arrest and the players involved. Here it is. A judge has ruled that a man suspected of sexually assaulting and murdering two women decades ago in the Valley is mentally fit to stand trial. Brian Patrick Miller is accused of being the killer of 22-year-old Angela Bross and 17-year-old Melanie Bernas. Their bodies were found in a Phoenix canal in the early 1990s. Miller was arrested eight years ago after a genealogist linked him to the crime using some of the latest DNA technology. He maintains his innocence and has pled not guilty. Prosecutors say they will seek the death penalty. So with that um, newscast talking about this arrest, um, I can't even wrap my head around the excitement that you had to feel professionally as well as personally on a very personal note because, you know, these two ladies had families and these families were very involved in, as you can only only imagine, you, you can't even imagine, um, how rewarding that feeling was knowing that you know your group you heading this group you leading this cold case of um investigation end up making this arrest but there's a long journey that can you talk a little bit about the difficulty of not just getting the information about this genealogy and knowing a potential suspect but then getting assistance to finding out why this person could or may not be the suspect can you talk a little bit about that yeah so during our journey, um, this three-and-a-half-year journey, that we uh, actually went back, and the, kind of the first step with a cold case is to go back and say, what did we miss? Fresh set of eyes. Um, uh, w- what was going on with the case? Is there anybody we missed? So we targeted certain individuals, and we, we flew around the country getting DNA um, and comparing it. Um, and we ended up uh, having so many disappointments um, because we would get excited because we would think, hey, this, is, this, this, is, this is our guy. And then the lab would come back and say, you know, there's not, it's, it's not a match. Um, so uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a kind of a painstaking journey. Um, we, we did, you know, make contact with the feds, the FBI. Uh, we flew back to uh, Philadelphia and we talked to a group of experts known as the VDOC Society. Um, upper echelon, uh, although eccentric, uh, group of people. <laughs> um, we presented the case to them. Uh, they gave us some great ideas of what to look at. And one of the main takeaways was, he's in your files. 
You and don't see it. As I alluded to before, our files were massive. And uh, so we, we plotted through. And, and to be honest, there's, there's a decent amount of creepy people out there. Yeah. So <laughs> we didn't have the, the bandwidth to check out all those creepy people. So we started to rate those people and figure out, hey, who do we need to talk to? Who do we need to get DNA from? So, uh, I, again, then, uh, then kind of out of the, the clear blue sky, um, our profiler kind of taught us, I began to work with a guy by the name of Richard Walter, who was a, uh, ex prison psychologist who'd spent his time, uh, interviewing sexual predators in the Michigan uh, prison system, excuse me. Because one thing we didn't mention is this was, these were sex crimes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so uh, Richard and I became kind of pen pals, um, and he told me, he said, this is what you need to look for on this type of, of predator. Um, and uh, so we used that. He's in your files. And then out of the blue sky, uh, we got a call from a genealogist who said, uh, we can, I think I can help you. And we, we thought at first, we kind of scratched our head and said, genealogy, is this, Genie out of the bottle? Which, we, is this witchcraft or what, what are we dealing with? And, it was very new in 2015, 2014. Yeah, it was, 20, it was, the, it was the fall of 2014. Yeah. So I asked the, uh, the lab, uh, who I trusted, a supervisor over there, hey, would you go meet this woman and kind of you know, assess as to what she you know, is willing to, to do and what she can offer? And that supervisor came back to me and said, I, I think it's a new emerging uh, Science, Science, if you will, uh, and technique, and it's worth a shot. And what do you have to lose? Because you're, you, you know, you're going uh, flying around the country, and you're um, so. Uh, we convinced the chain of command, which is sometimes hard to do um, in police work, yes. and uh, we ended up um, hiring her. And she ended up uh, calling me, and I'll never forget. It was uh, December of 2014, and, and giving me a surname. Um, wow. That An actual, I get chills. You have a name to a potential suspect. Absolutely. And it was a relatively common name. It was, it was the name yeah, of Miller. Miller. Um, but the light bulb went off and it's like, hey, let's, let's go check our files. Right. Like the Richard One the the VDOC Society was saying, uh, he's in your files. And there were multiple files of Miller's, but there was one file that spoke to uh, kind of the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And we called an immediate meeting and uh, we, we went to work on Brian and, uh, Miller. Brian Miller. Wow. Uh, and we, we've seen pictures of Brian Miller, and I don't even pretend that you would weigh in on this, but this was a creepy guy, and our producer on the show, we have a Badge Boys radio show, she actually met Brian Miller at one of the events. Can you talk a little bit about that, Robin? You know, Darren, it was a weird day, and, and a lot of times these car people, my son builds movie cars, so a lot of times when we're at these events, it's strange. It's kind of like Comic-Con versus Autobots kind of thing, and he had a zombie killer car. That's what we called him, the zombie killer, and it was just the weirdest experience for me as a person because he just gave me the the Jeeper Creeper vibe, and I just couldn't stand to be in his energy. And I don't think that I would ever be in the stance of being a victim to him because my stature was tall and I didn't come across as someone he could intimidate. 
And it was, he just gave me a weird vibe, almost a, a Chester molester type feel, just icky, icky, yeah. icky. And when I was looking at these photos, and which, again, Robin's spot on in terms of he was kind of like a Comic-Con individual. He had on the back of what was a police car looking mock-up, if you will, had lights and I don't know about sirens, but it had Zombie Hunter in the background. Did you see all that? Was that part of the, your creep file, if you will, or was that... Did you see these things as you were looking into him? So I, I think the the moment we kind of started to look at the actual file, then we kind of developed a plan to uh, triage his social media history and, and kind of start to look at that. And that that was something that spoke um, volumes uh, to us when, when we saw that he was the zombie hunter. And in fact, almost uh, uh, playing a role in kind of mocking society um, having done potentially what he did. I'm glad you mentioned that because there's times where he would do photo ops with police officers. And I don't want to include a lot of them in, in for, the, for the show, but I showed one where he's, t- you can almost sense he's enjoying mocking this officer. He's saying next to knowing I'm this killer that mm-hmm. you've been looking for for 20 some odd years at that time. Um, what were some of the difficulties on this case in terms of making arrest? Uh, from the the point that we knew that there was yeah a match. that this is your guy potentially based on the genealogy, but now you have to, if you will, get the probable cause to make the arrest. Absolutely. So so once we knew that we we did use a a, a, a ruse to get his DNA, um, it was confirmed by the lab. At that point, we had probable cause to make the arrest. Um, at that point, um, I'll, I'll never forget it. We we're in a, a, a meeting and we we're we we're talking about the next grant we were going to do. And it was pretty uh, low key. And then the lab came over, or actually the, the supervisor, Kelly, tried to call me multiple times. And I kept, uh, you know, what does she want? I'm, and I'm in a meeting, that kind of thing. And uh, the next thing I know, a knock at the door, and in came the whole lab team. And they said, <sighs> that hey, was a great feeling. not going to take <laughs> this yeah, means no, something. No, no. They, they, they <laughs> were going to interrupt whatever you were doing. Absolutely. This is I big. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, you guys found him. It, you, it's a match. And so I think there was a moment there were, there were hugs and then, uh, you know, almost, uh, breaking down in tears for yeah. the family. Yeah. Um, because we'd worked so hard and, and there were other individuals, obviously the case agent, the scene agent, and a lot of people over the years had put a ton of time in, like you said, Jason, but heart and soul from my standpoint, we worked three and a half years and almost to the point of being obsessed on, on these cases. And it was such a great feeling. Um, but then it quickly was subdued, and then we went to Hard tell work. the chain of command and then get the, you know, our, our uh, tactical folks to, to make the arrest. Yeah, and, and quite an arrest it was. The, the crime scene, it was – someone used the word – and again, don't weigh in on it if you can't um, – um, uh, hoarder. It was an extensive um, scene where he was living in terms of the collecting of evidence and so forth. Um, at this point, um, it goes to – the you're going to charge him, make the arrest. Were you there with the team when they made that arrest? How was that? Uh, I, I was not. Uh, I was on the planning side. Um, and usually we step out of Phoenix PD is a large department. So we usually step out of the side and let the tactical guys do their thing. Yeah. And it, it, believe me, it's in great hands when they take over. So um, and they were very supportive. And this was this meant a lot to a lot of them that had been on the department. So they wanted to be there and, and make that arrest. So it was actually made at a business uh, at a place of employment where Brian was working. And, and I think it's important to kind of 
say that this was one of the first genealogy cases, not specifically this one, but Phoenix is really kind of like a landmark police department in terms of weren't they like the first police department to make an arrest and using genealogy in terms of a surname not based on CODIS hit, you know, which is given to you, but actually kind of, um, again, new science. Yeah, I, I mean, based on everything that I've seen, um, I, I, uh, everything indicates that, yes, we were one of the first, if not the first, to use genealogy to solve a, a major uh, crime or crimes like this. You know, see, I was excited as sex crimes when we were looking at cold cases where everything was CODIS, CODIS, CODIS. You know, was there a crime before and is there a crime after? Their, their DNA in the system. But this has to do with their genealogy, their, their lineage of DNA that's out there. It's amazing, the science that, that provided this tool. Um, how confident were you when you reached out to them that this is going to be a great deal or, you know, just, just something I need to do? I, I don't think we we knew. Um, we just knew that we had to do something. And what we were doing was taking uh, a long time that we may be in, in nursing homes before we you know, <laughs> were able to, to get to solve this case. And uh, we wanted to deliver those answers to the family. We can't bring those girls back, but we can at least give them answers um, and deliver the person who did this to them, basically for justice. So um, I think... Uh, Back to your question that it was, it was, I don't think we were confident going in, but yeah. when she called me and said, and it just kind of all lined up almost like it was meant to, oh. to, to happen, uh, like the experts had helped us. Um, so it, it was phenomenal. Jason and I have both had cases that we look at as that one case and you were a investigator a case agent. And now you're the lead on this cold case homicide. Is this that one case for you? Absolutely. It's the highlight of my career. Um, and, and back to one thing you did say uh, about how these individuals like to act. Um, they have these things called sarcastic ruses, which are is what uh, the profiler told us they would use. So taking pictures with police officers, being at police events, that was, that was mockery. That was funny. That's part of their ego. Uh, absolutely. So it's... Uh, yeah, not everything is as grandiose as when you think back to, uh, like, the... Uh, who's the the Zodiac? Zodiac. And he would write letters right, and he would right. taunt the police. But you're, the, it's the subtle ones. And what I love about this profiler, I, you know, you can't say every profiler is always going to get it right. Uh, you know, go back to the the DC sniper shooting. There's not a single profiler in the country right. who even came close. But this profiler said, "He's in your file." Yes, he he's This is there. a sexual predator, and it's not that you or the hundreds of police officers that worked on the case, it's not that they missed it. It was just uh, DNA wasn't, and to his credit, to have his DNA on file and for him to not ever have that DNA run again for 16 years is, is pretty amazing. So he didn't do anything wrong on that side or yeah, actually so his, his dna oh. was never in the system yeah he had so never, he had never in no. 99 you said oh uh, no That's the unknown uh, profile oh, the unknown the crime scene. but yeah, yeah the, it's that that subtle ruse thing I, I think that is something that this is one of those cases that for the furtherance of law enforcement needs to be covered and taught at a young age uh career-wise for officers saying like, listen, you're going to build a file 
and have all these names. And this is a lead to follow up on. Is one of these people doing certain things? Are they showing up at police events? Are they taking pictures? Because that is a the subtle sarcasm. I've never heard it put like that, but it, it, I think it's fascinating. And he did it. Well, and, and from what the profiler told me, he said the, 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 the act, the criminal act stops once they're done with it, not once the police are done with it. So they will insert themselves into the investigation. They'll be at the, uh, the, the news media features. They'll, they'll be somewhere or they'll go tell somebody at a bar or somewhere along the lines. They will be in, in the, they will make their way into the files and he, they, there's a, I think, over 95% chance that they, not 100%, but they will be somewhere in the files. Embedded somehow. And in movies, they always show them, you know, collecting the newspaper clippings and so forth, but it kind of goes to that. They're they're reliving this event, and as a lot of sexual predators do, they relive this event. Well, the narcissism and arrogance that you have to have to commit these crimes, uh, it's almost a no-brainer that they do that. The sexual predator in them absolutely receives gratification from these crimes and thinking about them. And again, that ego, I cannot thank you enough, but before we let you go, if you're looking um, at a career in cold case and you're just going to talk to someone out there, what would you tell that cold case investigator? Because it seems like with defunding the police and some of these things that occurred, I'm not going to get political. We're losing some of those tools and assets. How important do you think, not just on this case, but in general, cold case investigative units are? Well, in my opinion, uh, murder is the, the number one crime that the police investigate, you know, followed by molestation, sex crimes. And, um, and so that ought to be uh, the highest priority of the department. And part of that is obviously your regular detectives going out on homicide scenes, uh, kind of the, the new homicides. But you have to have a group of talented people on the back end. The current you can't, yeah, you can't give up at the one-year mark and just say, oh, we're done. You have to keep looking at those cases, fresh set of eyes, talented, hardworking people that are patient and just drivers. And the new science. Yeah, and, and a, I, I will say, I'll plug, my, you know, toot my horn here, a leader that cares and wants you. to be there and is passionate about it. And uh, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's tough because they've already been worked. The case yeah. has already been yeah. worked. So... Um, but it's it's a thrill. It's a and to deliver justice like that years later to knock on a door. We need to have you back because you need to write a book, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, this is uh... write a book and come back. <laughs> well, thank you, and we'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. If you like the Badge Boys, you'll love their books, starting with Burning Shield, the Jason Schechterly story, which Arizona Diamondbacks president Derek Hall proclaimed, Jason is an inspiration and his story must be read and shared. The professionally written novel is a powerful biography chronicling Jason's gut-wrenching battle to health after being trapped in a fireball that consumed his police car and his high-stakes legal showdown against the Ford Motor Company for their explodingly lethal Crown Victoria police cruisers. Then there's Darren's award-winning Twisted But True book trilogy with close to 100 compelling and funny true crime stories that American detectives with Lieutenant Joe Kenda producer called The Perfect Blend of Humor, Heroism, and Honor. And retired Colonel Dave Grossman declared, Darren's Twisted But True books are hilarious, deep, and powerful. 
Each book in the series received the Pinnacle Award for the best true crime book, and a story from book two was featured on an ID Channel television show. And Robin's most recent book, Soul Stirrings, reviewed as an often humorous and spiritually uplifting story of a widow's soul-searching pilgrimage to the afterlife. Darren called it a love story, a ghost story, an investigative story. It's a story like no other. And Robin's first book, Victim No More, where she shares her harrowing experiences with rape and domestic violence as Robin takes the reader on a very personal journey through the morass of abuse and loss and ultimately survival. These Badge Boy books should be on everybody's top 10 reading list. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back, everybody. That is an absolutely stellar interview with Troy Hillman, uh, again, the retired co-case sergeant in a homicide with the Phoenix Police Department. Um, but because you got to see and hear that if you're watching TV, you listening right now, you are... It's kind of like an Easter egg. I always look at it as an, a present because the podcasters, um, those listeners, get to hear more of that interview because we have to be very succinct, sadly, with our interviews. It's a timestamp. Um, there's a window for the interview and for the, uh, for the next part that you'll hear, which is our Looney Laws, Heroic Headlines, and Inspirational. So we, uh, we forced Troy to stick around. We handcuffed him to the uh, table. Uh, so he's still here with us. <laughs> and I, I know that went very fast in that first interview segment. And we, we got a little bit off the chronological page a little bit, talking about, you know, he was arrested. But I'd like to hear more about when you first looked at that case and what your thought process was and, if you will, chronologically where that developed into the arrest. Okay. Uh, so 2008, uh, the fall, I, I was asked to kind of step in and, and take over the cold case squad. Uh, at that time, there were uh, about two detectives and a secretary um, and uh, just struggling with a lot of organizational problems. So I had a boss, a uh, phenomenal leader, Joe Knott was his name, lieutenant. Um, he uh, basically gave me marching orders and he gave, said, I'll get whatever resources you need to get this squad up and running. And so, uh, luckily, we had a, a gentleman by the name of Bill Stebe, who was oh, a great detective. Uh, he was yeah, a phenomenal homicide. detective. Yeah, he kind of guided us, uh, got a lot of our policies, oh, good uh, for him. kind of grounded us in what we're doing with cold case. So we started to really hunt for those uh, truly passionate, dedicated cold case type detectives because you have to have those prerequisite skills. Uh, we started to really develop our relationship with the lab. We started to um, just just build and kind of, uh, looking at, looking at cases. So I had heard about the canal murders. Um, but the original, uh, scene agent, the case agent, uh, was Russ Davis, phenomenal detective. He had retired, um, done the best job he could on those, those cases, uh, worked them tirelessly. And then Mike Meisler took it over and he worked on them, um, up until he retired, I believe in 2011 mm-hmm. timeframe. At that point, uh, we did get a public records request. Um, I believe it was a media request, and I printed out the reports not knowing what to expect. I think I got yelled at uh, by the admin section for uh, the amount of ink I went through. Um, (laughs) They were uh, reams and reams of paper, and that was just the police report. The files were 
uh, I wouldn't say unorganized, but what I would say with the passage of time and all the information that came in over the years, and we're talking a large time span, they were in file cabinets, they were downstairs mm-hmm. in, in rooms, and it was almost, you speak of an Easter egg, it was almost an Easter egg hunt trying to find wow. all these files. So um, I had a team that was kind of hungry and clamoring to work uh, an investigation or investigations as a team. Saw this case as an opportunity to say, "Hey, this is this is one we all can work as a team because it's massive cases um, and horrendous." What happened to these two girls was horrible. Absolutely, the, probably the worst. Uh, I would I would say one of Arguably. the two worst murders yeah. that have happened in the the Phoenix Savage. area, if not sure. the state of Arizona, for sure. Uh, so we started basically. Uh, kind of a game plan. We got everybody together in a planning meeting. Um, and, and the first goal was to say, hey, what did, what did we miss? Are there any people on here that we didn't grab their DNA? Because DNA really didn't become a thing uh, until the late 90s. Uh, so where we were, we were bringing in people back on the original uh, when it happened, and we may not have obtained their DNA sample. So we needed to figure out whose DNA we had, uh, we need to, to kind of get organized with the files. Uh, and it was uh, a heavy lift. Um, meanwhile, we had roughly 2,500 other cold cases that needed to be managed, and uh, we couldn't just abandon those. So we were, we were trying to balance this focal on these two cases of, with Melanie and Angela and also all these other cases um, with four, five detectives and myself. Um, so... We st- as we started to go through the cases, we flew all over the country. We obtained sample DNA samples. Uh, we really went back and forth with the lab. Of what did what did we miss from a forensic? Yeah, side. was the most probative evidence in terms yeah. of yeah. But um, and one of the things we really focused in on is we, is we knew this. It was hard for me to believe, as well as the squad, was that this guy stopped. So I was trying to figure out who was he. Why did he do it? And then why did he stop? And then where did he begin? So there had to be some pre-crime behavior and some post-crime, and we were missing it. And that was uh, so, and there's not a lot of always, um, unfortunately, a lot of communication between the jurisdictions. It's getting better with the internet, but we had to reach out and say, hey, have you had anything similar or um, and really try to mine that information. What I've noticed in sex crimes, a lot of times people don't realize that these supposedly you know, urinating in public where you're not going to have that sex crime label as a charge is actually legitimately a sex pre- sexual predator. Uh, they just downgraded the original charge and gave them a, a urination charge and so forth. And so there wouldn't be a CODIS hit. There wouldn't be a prior you know, assault. Did you find that with him, uh, Brian Miller, specifically in terms of did you find a crime that you were able to look at and say, yeah, it, it w- didn't rise to a level of a homicide investigation, but it gave us an indication of prior activity? So one of the things that we realized uh, to, to that point was that we were uh, maybe outmatched as to who we were looking for. Uh, and we came across a, a group out of Philadelphia known as the VDOC Society. Uh, we flew back there, two, two detectives and myself, uh, because I wasn't going to miss that. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was a phenomenal uh, journey and learning. And we basically taught them about what happened, and they gave us a lot of feedback. One from that meeting on, we developed a relationship with a profiler. Uh, his name is Richard Walter, and he, he's the one who taught us what to look for as far as getting to your point of 
he has a helix and how he said, Troy, you're looking along the lines of a, of a Dom or a Bundy. He's in that what he called classification or subclass. And he said he will develop this way along his helix. And he's, he's patented that. Um, and that, that's exactly what happened. So to your, to your point, once we began to look at Brian Miller, there were certain crimes in his past that uh, were on par with what Richard, the profiler, told us uh, would be, would be yeah. there. Did Just, he end up getting charged with any of those along with, or is the, are the murders so big that they just didn't even want to? Yeah, those were already, um, those. he was either maybe a suspect in them or they were. Adjudicated uh, yeah, Or um, they just kind of kind of went it's away. history. Yeah. yeah. Is so, there still being an investigation into post-crime? Because, again, it is hard to believe he stopped. The brutality of these murders was not something you see very often. It's hard for me to believe that he was just able to say, okay, I'm done, I'm good. Well, and, and, and I'm on the absolute same page. Uh, and we did did look extensively, um, and we have some uh, that we believe that he may be tied to. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I can't get into too much because sure. it's uh, sure. you know it's going to court. Hopefully right. this year. It's been seven years. Uh, <laughs> hopefully it'll finally. Yeah, go. can you? Are you? And if you're not allowed to speak to that, that's fine. But I I always am fascinated with you know defendant has the right to a speedy trial. So if if they want to jump in like the detectives. The prosecutor's office, the DAs, everybody, they have no choice because that's their right. How can something get drug out for seven years when you are pretty confident that you've got it locked down? And I'm sure the prosecutors feel the same way. Why is, why is it seven years later and we still haven't seen? Uh, I, I have no idea. All I can say is it's extremely frustrating, mm-hmm. but it, it is exceptionally frustrating for, I can't imagine, for the families because – at some point, they want him to face justice. I take some degree of solace in knowing that he's still behind bars, no matter if he's been sentenced or not. Um, but yes, it is, it is incredibly frustrating that it takes this long. And, yeah. and frankly, you know, if you're looking at it, uh, taxpayer money uh, to get this thing sure. moved forward. But, but it is a capital case, and uh, it does take a while to move through the system. But, and certainly COVID, uh, all that went on with that, prolonged some of this i think what we need to focus on though you hit it on the head it's the families and you know this is near and dear to my heart i still teach victimology at the academy and victimology is just about one simple thing not re-victimizing the victims in this case the victims are deceased but the families and that's exactly what happened the elation that they must have felt that day when you said we got him and then almost immediately, and now seven years later, they're probably continuing to feel re-victimized by the system because why is this person not standing trial and having to answer for these crimes? It's just a, it's kind of heartbreaking the way things have to go. Yeah, talking with parents of murdered children, as much as I did during my um, you know, Crime Stoppers days, it, that's absolutely 100% the issue at hand. And not just... When the gravel hits and the, he's guilty and he goes away, the appeal processes that are automatic, um, all those things, and he still has his day in court in so many aspects, as you well know, Troy. Um, so this this is life sentence for the family, sadly to say. Yeah. I- uh, not a good way to end that segment <laughs> on such a down note. So I'm going to end it with 
Congratulations yes. on just a hell of a job, Troy, yeah. with your guys and w- with outside partnership. It's so critical. And a great leader knows that. And, and you did. You went out and you absolutely created, fostered these relationships that helped solve this crime. Because you tell me, I don't think this crime would have been solved without genealogy. I, I do think that we eventually would would have plotted through the files um, and actually Good Detective Schwarzkopf and I were I was working from the the tail end of the list and he was working from the other side. Interesting. And obviously M, M for Miller is in the middle of the list. I do think uh, genealogy is a phenomenal resource, very, very powerful. But back then we had never heard of it as far as we had heard of Ancestry.com. My, sure. My, Dad had talked about it, but but that's it, actually almost like yeah, not, not in an application towards a solving Genealogy. a murder. Yeah, not a criminal. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah, yeah their family tree. Background, yeah, background. You, you, you caught him based on his family tree. That's amazing. Absolutely. Amazing. So she definitely expedited the case. Did she solve it on her own? No, no. she's phenomenal. But I can't. I can't say it was a group effort. It was he's in your files, which was this VDOC society told us. It was Richard. It was me becoming obsessed with it uh, as a leader and, and fighting for those things. It was my team of very, very hardworking detectives. Each one of them had their own skill set. Um, so it, it is a great story about keeping cold case funded alive. and alive because murder is the most important thing that the police department investigates and then you go into molesters and then you go into sex assaults but to me murder you need to have talented detectives working on cases not just for the first 48 or the first year but going back decades and looking at these cases and how to apply new technology new techniques new fresh set of eyes that's important that's the perfect way to um um segue if you will to our headlines we do these headlines where i'll throw out a headline to jason and our guest that's you troy and you don't know these headlines i'm just going to throw them out and real quick almost rapid fire what you think of it and this one is a perfect segue uh this headline is from the yavapai county sheriff's department that partner with an outside group to identify little miss nobody the captain underneath says after 62 years quote little miss nobody end quote is now confirmed to be a four-year-old girl by name of sharon lee and uh your thoughts about again it's kind of like mirrors what we've just been talking about for the last hour it does and you know the more i i the sense of pride that i feel as a as a former phoenix police officer knowing troy knowing the cold case unit knowing that case and working around some of the people, the sense of pride I feel today after hearing this story is overwhelming. And as we go through the process of change in law enforcement, you know, we're going to change terms. And, uh, you know, if you want to make a softer term, then don't call a SWAT team a SWAT team. If you want to just – the rhetoric is going to change. I, I wouldn't mind seeing the term cold case because when you hear cold case, what do you think of? There's no new leads. There's no new evidence. It's over. It's done. It's not going to get solved. And within that rhetoric, all that we are doing is forgetting about the victims. And a case doesn't ever have to be cold. It just needs to continue to be worked. That goes to what Troy was saying about the funding and everything else. So when you read something going back 60 years, it was still a victim. It was still a family. You could have now great nieces and nephews or or grandkids that are still getting answers. And that's just beautiful. Yeah. Please, your take, Troy. 
Absolutely. And in fact, I had a little cartoon in my, my office and it had a field mouse and he was standing there and he could very clearly see this looming uh, eagle was swooping down and, and the, the field mouse was, in all essence, uh, obviously going to perish. Um, but he was lifting his middle finger and the, the caption said, never give up. And that was truly the passion of if we are the last line for the families um, and if we give up, then... That, you know, so, so to me, abs- that is phenomenal. That many years, and somebody mm-hmm. did not give up and gave the whether it be the the great grandchildren answers, you know, mm-hmm. and and can't bring them back or can't assist to anything, but it's just giving them answers and in cl- some degree of closure. Yeah, it, it, we, there's that saying, "We'll never forget," Absolutely. and it can be applied with that as well. Yeah. The uh, next headline has to do with, sadly, Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania State Police paid the ultimate sacrifice uh, with their lives. In addition, a civilian also walking down an interstate highway who were attempting to rescue were also killed when a impaired drunk driver hit them. We're talking about Trooper Martin F. Mack III and Trooper Brandon T. Siska, who was also a fire chief. Um, your take on it, my friend. You know, this is not only the loss of life of two troopers as well as the civilian that they were trying to help. It's it's appalling and it's disgusting. It's infuriating. But this is also the prime example of a case. And we are so guilty of this as a society. Law enforcement, we always are reactive versus proactive. So this person is going to go to jail, right, for, yep. I mean, They've three counts tra- of manslaughter, DUI. What a lot of people might not know, so two, two interesting things, and one of them is going to absolutely blow your mind. Okay. The first one is about two weeks before the accident, this woman tweeted, what I twit. am the best drunk driver in the world. Oh, my God. So that might be a red flag that if she believes she's the best drunk driver, she probably drives drunk a lot. And the fact that her followers, her friends, her family, somebody in law enforcement didn't see that and then do something proactive, that's bothersome. But here's another interesting tidbit that when I read this, I couldn't believe it. Darren, right before this accident, she was pulled over. However, the call... Now, when you think of like Troop K in Pennsylvania, it's not like the city of Phoenix. You don't have 40 officers at your disposal, right? She was pulled over. The call came out of a pedestrian walking on a busy interstate, very dangerous situation. So those officers left that traffic stop to go assist this pedestrian. Who could get killed? And then the same per- oh. and the same person that had already been pulled over, and it would have prevented that crime. It allowed the crime to happen. So it was the Is same officer. I don't believe it was the same okay. officer. Oh, the I believe that they went to do backup. But she, when that oh. officer left the traffic stop, she just started driving again, and then for whatever oh. reason, you know, hit and them as they were. I want to in the roadway. I want to stunning. Def- it's stunning. I want to defend those officers because I've been in that situation. Oh where, yeah, yeah. Of course, I, I'm not I, throwing them know, under the bus. I, I, I'm not. Grab a key. I get call someone, and then all of a sudden you find out they were able to, you know rearrange things and now they're driving again and it just drives you crazy yeah you can't show discretion it seems sometimes with these drunk drivers you make the best decision you, you can with you the information do. at the but, time and oh, at the hearts. time of the traffic stop right 
we've all been there. Nobody was in imminent danger right, right then. And they mm-hmm. might not even known yet that she was under the influence. This was this could have been three and a half seconds into the traffic stop right, where they right. walked up and then heard pedestrian a, a, a wandering around or the interstate. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I gotta go save wow. their life. No, I so did not no, know I'm that. certainly it's just the irony of the timing that she was pulled over. Wow. And then boom, minutes later she runs these three individuals down, and Pennsylvania lost two state troopers on the same same call. Civilian. It's just yeah, stunning. It's horrible, horrible. Yeah. No, I did yeah. not know that. And yeah. that again, that my heart goes out to the officers who were in that that call because they'll be second guessing that forever. Oh yeah. Um, Troy, your thoughts? Yeah. So I mean, certainly what what you guys said it's an absolute tragedy, and I I just um it it makes my heart hurt in these times when there's so much anti police rhetoric and sentiment that uh, these these deputies, I think they were, were putting themselves in harm's way and they ought to, they're heroes. Yeah. So they, we ought to not be demonized for every, every night when guys and gals suit up across the country, they are putting themselves in harm's way for the better of society. Love it. Love it. And this uh, kind of segues to our next, uh, uh, because you have a, a very interesting um, inspirational that is somewhat similar to that in a sense. And we'll, we'll see that in a second. So that does it for our cop talk. And we'll be right back for Looney Laws, Heroic Headlines. And again, the inspirational close. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. During these challenging days, we not only need to remember our many fallen heroes for their ultimate sacrifice, but also honor them so their families know we've not forgotten. And that's what the Arizona Fallen Hero Memorial Riders Organization is all about. Each year, the nonprofit organizes three memorial rides among the beautiful backdrop of North, South, and Central Arizona, with the proceeds going to the 100 Club of Arizona. Learn more about these fun rides and how you can honor all of Arizona's fallen heroes at Arizona Fallen Heroes Memorial Riders.org. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. That was an absolutely fascinating segment, Darren. First of all, I'm a huge fan of Troy Hillman. I always have been. For you've known him a little He's longer, a dear friend. longer than me, but I I mean I knew his name when I was brand new, got to work around him a little bit before I retired. Uh, I'm so glad that he was, it doesn't surprise me that he was the one that, that, that finally solved this, but this was the truly the one case that I can think of going back. I, I've lived here my whole life. This was the one case that I would pray. This has to come. We have to solve it. We, yeah, do not let these officers and detectives end up dying in their 90s with this still on their minds and their hearts. And to know that it got done, I, a lot of people outside of Arizona, I mean, their states will have a case like this, but this truly was the one. This was our Jack the Ripper. That, and it was the brutality. Yeah. It was the senselessness. It was the victims that it just made your heart gravitate toward it. And uh, fascinating too. So I'm excited to see uh, the adjudication process, and when it's done, I hope Troy or somebody with inside knowledge writes that book. Oh, it will end here. up being yes. it yes. will end up being one of the greatest crime novels ever in the state of Arizona. I mean, going and back, yeah, international going, going back appeal, international years. appeal. So, yeah, this is uh, a monster. Awesome guest. So, uh, as always, 
the awkward you transition. You have to go, the awkward transition yes. from something so incredible to your loony loss. Yeah, this one's a little bit more comfortable in the sense that the first loony law, oh my gosh, it's kind of gross. Now, loony laws are, are around the world and they're absolutely true. Some are based on cultural differences, but they're all true. And since they're true, you need to know the loony laws around the world so that when you follow your path somewhere, some far off distant land, you discover that, oh my God, you're in France and you've broken the law by not wearing a Speedo on a beach or you haven't broken the law because you've had sex with an agreeable toddler. Disgusting, right? Yeah, no, this is true. Agreeable uh, toddler, those yeah. are not two words that can go together. Horrifically, it's true. There's no age of consent in France. There is no age of consent in regards to sex. There is no law regarding how old a person can be to give consent to have sex. There is not, not that statutory rape component in France. They don't have it. So um, basically, this news clip will give you a sense of a much-needed law in France. Okay, it's time now for French Connections, our weekly look at the intricacies of French life. Uh, and here in studio to discuss is Florence Villeneau. Hey, Hi, Florence. Now, today we're focusing on a very thorny topic uh, that has been in the news a lot over the last few weeks and months, the age of sexual consent. It's a debate uh, that rages time and again in France. Uh, uh, campaigners are calling for an age of sexual consent to be enshrined in law as it is in the rest of the European Union. It is a touchy subject. Yeah. It's uh, really the topic of the day. The word du jour as well, consent, uh, le consentement in French. Now, surprising as it may be, as it stands in France, there is no official age of consent. That is to say there is no age under which a child is deemed unable to agree to having sex. And this puts France in a very particular position compared to other countries where legal codes specify that children below a certain age cannot legally give consent to sex. And so having sex with a person below that age is automatically considered rape. There is no question of interpretation. This is what we often call statutory rape. You can see it uh, here. This is what other ages of consent are around the world. In the United States, it depends on the state. It's between 16 and 18. Austria and Italy have fixed it at 14, Denmark 15, Germany, Belgium, the UK and Spain 16. So other countries have, offen uh, have offences of statutory rape, but in France you cannot be convicted uh, of rape based purely on age. That's right. And the laws around this issue are very complex. I'm going to try to walk you through them. Currently, the law does criminalize sexual relations with a minor under the age of 15, but it's not automatically considered rape. To be considered rape, let's take a look at the French law. Uh, rape is defined as sexual penetration under violence, duress, threat, or surprise, regardless of the victim's age. And so this means that a person uh, having sex with a child can only be convicted of rape if prosecutors can prove there was violence, coercion, uh, threat, or surprise, so absence of consent. Otherwise, the person could be accused or charged, rather, with sexual violation. The maximum sentence for sexual violation is seven years compared to 20 years for rape. So there is a big difference here. Essentially, French law leads, uh, leaves a lot of room open to interpretation. And currently, Flo, the French government, they're seeking to enshrine in law 15 as the minimum age of consent, but it's not the first time attempts have been made to do so. Indeed, this is a debate that comes up a lot, and especially in the wake of the Me Too movement, France really began to scrutinize its laws around child sex abuse as well as its somewhat libertine attitude towards sex. The then Minister of Gender Equality, Marlène Schiappa, she tried to fix the age of consent at 15. 
This fell through due to legal complications. It's coming up again. Uh, and what was true then is true now. That is to say that while on the one hand there is this widespread consensus that introducing a statutory age of consent will protect minors, a lot of other people fear that changing the law will actually criminalize consensual sex mm. between young people. Take a listen. Il arrive. Ce sont des cas euh, peut-être marginaux, peut-être limites, qu'il y ait des relations consenties entre un mineur de moins de 15 ans et une personne qui va être adulte de 18, 19 ans, etc. Là, la loi va nécessairement qualifier ces faits-là de viol. Et donc, on est euh, dans une fausse réponse à un pro une problématique réelle. Now, the government does say that there will be an exception for young people in a relationship with a five year age buffer. Okay, it's a real minefield. Now, why is the issue of uh, the age of consent coming up again? Uh, why this national reckoning flow? Well, there have been a number of high-profile cases of sexual violence against children that have really been in the public, uh, including uh, a case of a, pr a prize-winning writer, a, a prominent modeling agent, a predatory priest, uh, a surgeon, a group of firefighters also accused of systematically sexually abusing a young woman. Now, and on top of that, uh, France has been shaken by a series of allegations of incestuous abuse, notably against one of the country's best-connected political scientists, a man named Olivier Duhamel. Now, France does not have a particular problem when it comes to child sex abuse compared to other countries. But uh, there has been somewhat of a long-standing uh, long culture of silence around sexual abuse. It's still considered something that's very taboo, but things seem to be changing. Recently, for instance, uh, there was a campaign on social media where people shared their own stories under the hashtag MeTooAncest, and even the president weighed in on the issue. La honte aujourd'hui change de camp. Et à vous qui vous êtes... Libéré d'un fardeau que vous avez trop longtemps porté, à vous qui allez le faire et parfois hésiter, je veux juste vous dire, on est là, on vous écoute, on vous croit, et vous ne serez plus jamais seul. Yeah, the government really did take this issue. Uh, they, they took the ball on the hop and have tried to respond to it uh, responsibly. Now, in the case of incest in particular, the justice minister wants to fix the age of consent at 18 years. Florence. That's right. And that means that a victim who's a minor won't have to prove that an act of incest from a family member was non-consensual, as is currently the case. On posait la question au mineur de savoir s'il s'était débattu, s'il avait crié, s'il avait dit non, s'il avait, avait cherché à s'enfuir. Or, un mineur de 17 ans qui est agressé par son père, il n'y aura pas de bagarre, il n'y aura pas de violence physique, il n'y aura pas de cri, euh, il n'y aura pas d'opposition parce que l'agresseur est le père. Now, currently, victims of childhood incest have until they're 48 to file complaints, so 30 years after they, be they become 18 uh, adults, essentially. Some are calling for that limit to be permanently lifted. But if you look at the figures in France, it's really chilling. A recent poll, for instance, found that one in 10 French people say that they were a victim of incest as a child. One in 10 people. So this is a very important topic that is being addressed. Huge. And of course, naturally a taboo topic. So when the spotlight is put on it and there's some legislating, uh, I think it can only be a welcome. Thanks for that, Florence. And for more uh, French Connections, uh, check out our website, 
France24.com forward slash EN and go to the French Connections page for all previous That was disgusting. Episodes. That is absolutely disgusting. That that can actually be a thing. Yeah, this goes above loony law. This is just disturbing. Yeah, yeah. On so many loony levels. lack of law. Now, yeah. this kind of... The loony next, lack of law. Loony lack of law. Yeah. Uh, this next law in France has to do with Speedos. Our mandatory swimwear, mandatory swimwear, Speedos, will be defined. And so basically you can't wear non-revealing swim shorts. You have to wear very revealing swim shorts. So for me, it's worth paying the fine. Um, I have no problem with paying the fine. I'm not going to show off my junk or lack thereof. Um, and the idea that you, I'm, I'm not going to go to Fr a beach in France. I'm just not going to do it. I don't want to see a bunch of guys wearing Speedos. I do not want to do it. So here is the sign that prohibits um, good swimwear for tasteless swimwear. And that is a great sign for France. I love that sign. Um, I'm yeah, with you though. I'm wearing the board shorts and I'm happy to pay whatever the fine is. There's oh, no way. You required to wear a Speedo? Give me a break. Yeah. Now, if the water wasn't cold, I might consider it. But no. cold water, I'm not wearing a Speedo. No. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. The hero of this week, unfortunately, suffered a very tragic end. Eastland County, Texas. A sheriff's deputy died while trying to save others from wildfires. Eastland County Sheriff's Deputy Barbara Finley died while trying to save others from a wildfire, according to the Cisco Police Department. The chief stated, It is with very heavy hearts that we learned of the death of one of our Eastland County deputies who put it all on the line last night trying to save people from the horrible fires. Deputy Finley went to check on an elderly resident in the Gorman City area when her vehicle went off the road and was engulfed in flames. The sheriff said that the visibility on the roadways wasn't good due to massive smoke from the wildfire. Deputy Sergeant Finley was 51 years old and a grandmother. Her son, John Finley, thanked the community in his Facebook post for the outpouring of love and prayers, saying, I want to thank everyone for the thoughts and prayers. In Eastland, flags were lowered to half-staff in remembrance of Deputy Finley, Finley was also the Gorman Police Chief before joining the Eastland County Sheriff's Office and had a law enforcement career spanning almost 20 years. Her son John said his mission now is to teach his children who their grandmother was and how she died a hero. Absolutely outstanding. My heart breaks for Eastland County Deputy Finley, but way to wear the uniform and a way to do what you were called to do. This inspirational story is very inspirational to me because instead of a group of people whipping out their cell phones and just taking pictures, we had some good Samaritans who stopped to assist a Florida Highway Patrolman who was getting attacked on the side of the road. Tampa, Florida, Sergeant Steve Gaskins of the Florida Highway Patrol is praising the good Samaritans who stopped along I-4 to help a Florida Highway Patrol trooper who was under attack while trying to help a pedestrian walk along the busy highway. Dash cam video showed the dramatic encounter between trooper Jonathan Ruiz and 24-year-old Alexander Delgado, who was recently kicked out of his mother's house, according to the arrest report. The trooper was trying to help him off the highway by getting him into the patrol car. The dash cam video shows Delgado pull away, throw a punch at the trooper's face. Then Delgado tried to run away, but the trooper quickly caught up. Delgado threw several more punches, 
striking, striking the trooper in the face again and again. By the time the scuffle broke out, several civilians had stopped to assist the trooper. Delgado suffered a minor cut on his chin while the trooper suffered a bloody nose as a result from this incident. In a news release, Florida Highway Patrol thanked all the Good Samaritans that stopped on I-4 in Tampa to help our trooper. When news reporters tried to interview the trooper, he was already busy, back to work, helping motorists on traffic collisions on that same stretch of highway. Delgado was charged with battery on law enforcement officer and resisting arrest with violence. And here's and the video. That just goes to show you there are still a lot of good people out there and they are on our side. They are on the side of right and wrong and they are on the side of law enforcement. And law enforcement officers, for all you civilians out there, are not shy. If you want to <laughs> jump into the fray Thank and you, you want to help them out when they're getting attacked, please do so because yes. the same thing, and I'm never going to stop saying it every week, leave the day better than you found it. Leave somebody else's life better than you found it. And not only did you help that trooper and make his day better, now he's back to work making other people's days better. The ripple effect goes on and on and on. Do not ever be afraid to be on the side of what is right. Be safe. God bless. We'll see you next week. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys. Heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Batch Boys.